pastors Michael and Brenda Brunzo welcome you and thank you for listening to the following message. This message was recorded during a regular service at Faith Fellowship Church. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we believe this message will encourage and strengthen you in your daily walk of faith. God bless you as you listen. Genesis account, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day, and we showed you how that applied to the six days of creation, each day being a thousand years, and then a Sabbath day of rest, the seventh day, which was the 7,000 year of human history, and marked the millennial reign of Christ, where he comes to earth and reigns for a thousand years. And I didn't preach that message to show you how talented I am or how educated I am in eschatology or end time events. I preach that message to create a sense of urgency. And I know some people don't appreciate a message like that because they say there's a lot of conjecture in it. But I, I feel like I presented it to you in such a way that you could see it for yourself in the scriptures. And I emphasize the fact that there's no coincidences in the scripture and by the law of double reference the things that we've seen in the past or the things that Israel went through can be applied to the things in the New Testament and the church and the things that we go through and types and shadows show us things to come and you've heard the saying it's in the old concealed it's in the new revealed well it's in the old concealed as types and shadows and but it's been revealed in the actual uh, events that took place, the prophetic uh, events that took place based on the prophetic models of the Old Testament. And that's part of what I was trying to show you. And this week, I want to reinforce it a little bit more and show you some other things that some people would call coincidences or some people would be saying that I'm drawing conjecture from the scriptures, but I'll let you decide for yourself as you look at the scriptures yourself. But uh, I want to start out by talking to you this morning about the precious blood of Jesus Christ and the power that is in that blood. And uh, it has everything that we could possibly need to live a victorious life. And in that precious blood is redemption, fellowship, healing, protection, and all authority over the devil. A lot of people don't believe they have authority over the devil, but you do. He doesn't have to be running roughshod over your life and your family and your children because you can take authority over the things that he's doing and put an end to it. And the blood plays a big part in that. Redemption, because Ephesians 1.7 tells us we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. Fellowship, because Hebrews 10.19 tells us we can have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Healing, because Isaiah 53 and 5 tells us that with his stripes, we are healed. Protection, because of Exodus 12 and 13, tells us the blood shall be for you a token upon the houses where you are 
And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And we're going to look at that further here in a minute because we are uh, taking communion today. And uh, I normally don't preach a message uh, pertaining to communion itself, but this is going to be a there's going to be a lot of stuff in here today to explain our communion ceremony. And then authority over the devil, because Revelation 12, 1 tells us that we overcome him, the devil, by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. So there's a bloodline that runs like a scarlet thread from Genesis throughout the Bible all the way to the end of Revelation. We can find a blood line, a scarlet thread. But God needed a man to work his plan in the earth, and so he calls on a man by the name of Abraham. And he says, Abraham, if you'll obey me and follow me, I'll make you into a great nation, so great that you couldn't count, it'll be like the sands of the sea or the stars in the sky, you couldn't even count how great a nation it will be. And I will bless you beyond your wildest dreams. See, God needed a man in the earth. And through this nation, God would make himself known and make his word known and eventually bring into this nation the living word and the lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. It would be through the lineage of this man that he chose. And the Gospel of Matthew gives us the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And it tells us that he was the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it tells us that Abraham begat Isaac or birthed Isaac. And Isaac begat Jacob. And Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel, begat Judas, from which Jesus came from the tribe, the line of the tribe of Judah, uh, and his brethren that made up the 12 tribes or the 12 patriarchs of Israel. And that is what became a great nation. And through a chain of events, the nation of Israel eventually became enslaved to a wicked Pharaoh. They, the, the nation of Israel prospered under uh, the, the leadership of Joseph. He was second only to Pharaoh. And uh, there were, it was a, a line of events that took place that got Joseph into Egypt. He was sold into Egypt as a slave, but then God raised him up to be second to Pharaoh. And he, he, he interpreted dreams showing seven years of great uh, prosperity and then seven years of famine. Seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And he interpreted that dream for Pharaoh and so Pharaoh puts him in charge of all uh, the farms and agriculture and the granaries, and he built these silos to hold grain. And for the seven years of uh, plenty, he harvested that grain and put it in silos so to get Egypt through the seven years of famine. But anyway, uh, Egypt was selling grain to all the people in Egypt. And when they ran out of money, they sold their land to Egypt, to Pharaoh, to pay for the grain. And then he was selling it to foreigners as well. They were coming and getting it, up to and including Joseph's family. 
Israel and, the, and his, his other brothers that were left behind, the ones that sold them into slavery. But anyway, I just wanted to give you a quick recap on that, but through a chain of events, Israel eventually became uh, so great that the, uh, the Pharaoh that loved Joseph and loved Israel and his family as they're growing in the land of Goshen, which is the choicest part of Egypt, well, this other Pharaoh comes on the scene and he sees them as a threat because they're growing so quickly and so largely. And he says, they'll eventually take over our nation. So he enslaves them and he treats them harshly and makes them build all his pyramids and all of this stuff. But anyway, Pharaoh had them in captivity for like 400 years, a little bit more or less. But And it was during this captivity that they really grew. They grew into a great nation. And uh, this is where God first revealed this bloodline to the children of Israel. He instructed them to draw it for themselves around the entryway of their home. I'm using the word draw, but you know, it was sprinkled and on the doorposts and lentils of the house. Uh, and then he showed them the power that was in that blood. He revealed it to them in what has become known as the night, the day, the death angel passed over, the night of Passover. And God commissions Moses and his brother Aaron to go and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. He's held them long enough. 400 years is long enough. But Pharaoh had a hard heart. And after nine miraculous and scary, terrible plagues, Pharaoh still refused to let God's people go. Oh, he acted like he was going to do it a couple times, but he's always putting restrictions on it. And God said, no. Free or nothing. And then in Exodus, the 11th chapter, it says, Moses said to the people of Israel, thus saith the Lord, or the Lord told me to tell you this, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill and all the firstborn of the beast. Every firstborn in Egypt was going to die that night. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I want to bring out here is that uh, this last plague, the prophet Jeremiah wrote about it, and he called it a great terror. And it was with this tenth plague, the last plague, that Pharaoh finally agreed to let God's people go. And uh, in Exodus 12, 10 through 13, it says, the Lord told Moses and Aaron to instruct the head of each household to take a lamb for their house. And the lamb they chose should be without blemish, a male no more than a year old. So don't bring me something that got braces on his teeth or he's got a broken bone or he's got a blemish. I want a perfect lamb without spot or blemish. So they're instructed to kill it in the evening of the 14th day of the same month and then take the blood from that lamb and strike the two side posts of the door and the lintel or the top of the door. In other words, they drew a bloodline around the door. 
And then they said to eat the lamb in the house. So they're instructed not only to eat the lamb completely, which represents one of the whole burnt offerings in Leviticus, but they were instructed to eat it in haste while they were dressed to travel. They had to have their shoes on, their traveling clothes, they had to have their staff and their little overnight bag ready alongside them. He said, eat it in haste because this night you're going to leave Egypt in a hurry. So God said, it is the Lord's Passover. He's instituting it. For he would pass through the land of Egypt that night and smite all the firstborn of both man and beast, and it would be against all of the gods of Egypt that he will execute judgment. Now, I don't know if you realize it or not, but every one of those plagues represented a god that Egypt worshipped. And God was showing them that their gods didn't mean anything to them, and they weren't real, because they worshipped the Nile River. And what did God do? He turned it into blood and everything in it died. Uh, they worshipped flies. They worshipped cattle. They worshipped all these things. And by God sending these plagues, he was mocking their gods. And then he says to the children of Israel, the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Now you got to remember, Israel lived in Egypt. And God says, I'm going to smite the land of Egypt. And they didn't have a full understanding of the blood yet, but they did that night. So God called the blood of that innocent lamb a token. Another word for token would be a sign or a symbol or an emblem, something that represents something else. But a symbol of what? It symbolized the blood of Jesus Christ, a future sacrifice that John the Baptist called what? The Lamb of God. So he says that uh, he called it a token uh, which means symbol. So it's important to understand that this plague was judgment that Adam brought upon mankind when he disobeyed God and sinned against God in the garden. That's when judgment was pronounced. And man had judgment coming. So don't think God was doing something that was mean. He was paying forth some judgment that they had coming since Adam. But God, in his great mercy, held off the fullness of that judgment, at least towards Israel at that time. But on this night, God will lift his withholding hand and allow the destroyer to execute the judgment or the sentence of the law of sin and death that Paul wrote about in Romans. Uh, and it would be on Egypt, not Israel. It doesn't seem fair, but because all man was due judgment. Adam sinned for every man. So the children of Israel being Adam's descendants were also due judgment, and the devil knew it. 
Oh, how he knew it. But what he didn't realize is that God had already provided the salvation of man. God's lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. That means when the, when the foundations of the world were laid, when God created the worlds, and we don't even know when that is. We can't even fathom the idea of how long ago it was. But when he did, Jesus Christ, his son, his only begotten son, was already sacrificed and slain in God's mind. It was as good as done. So let me read to you. The, well, before I do, we have to understand that the blood they struck around the entrance of their homes had the power to withhold that judgment for another day in time. Israel will get their judgment, but it's not going to be until the tribulation period. So God's people were drawing a bloodline that the destroyer could not cross. And in Exodus 12, 21 through 23, uh, again, this is Moses giving instructions, but I want to bring something else out here as well. But Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. He didn't say kill the lamb. He said kill the Passover. And you should take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin where the lamb's blood was drained. And the hyssop is like a branch, a little bush. I guess we could call it a ancient paintbrush. And he said, dip that hyssop in the blood that's in the basin and strike the lintel and the two doorposts of the entrance to your house. And then he said, and this is important, and none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. Now, that meant that as long as you were in the house, you were protected. But if you left the house, you were on your own. God was no longer responsible for you, and you were open game for the destroyer. So if somebody falls away or backslides and leaves the house, they're game for the destroyer. Verse 23 says, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door of that house and will not allow the destroyer, the destroyer to come into the house to smite you or your loved ones that are in the house. See, it's up to the elders, it's up to the head of the household to get their loved ones into the house. That's your responsibility. So the destroyer would have loved to kill the Israelites or the children of Israel, God's chosen people. But he wasn't allowed to even kill one of their animals. Why? Because of the line of blood that was drawn around their doorposts and the lentils, the entrance to their house. So it certainly wasn't the blood of that little lamb that they slaughtered that had enough power in it to withhold the destroyer. But it was a token of the blood of Christ. And that was the blood that had enough power in it 
to hold the destroyer off. So when the head of the household, dads and husbands, single mothers, when the head of the household applied the blood to the doorpost of his home, he drew a line that would deny the excess of the devil into his home. I wonder if that line still works today. I wonder if there's still enough power in the blood of Christ to draw a line that the devil can't cross today. Yeah. And that line has to be drawn in faith. Yeah. Don't just do it because somebody else did it. You do it in faith. And maybe next week, I don't know exactly, but I'm on a rabbit trail right now where God is guaranteeing the safety of households under certain conditions. So you might have a wild one running around out there, but God has a plan for him. But it's going to take the head of the household, whether it's the husband or the wife, in the case of a single mother, it should be the husband in a marriage, but it's going to take the husband or the head of the household to apply this line and have faith in that line because he is ultimately, or she, the head, is ultimately going to be responsible for the safety of the household. I hope you're getting this. But that line of blood was just a token, a symbol that represented the power that was in the blood of the Lamb of God that was slain in God's mind from the foundation of the world. Now the power in that blood would not have worked had not God had it done already in his mind. Had he not done it at the foundation of the world, because it wouldn't apply here, it wouldn't be a token here, and there would be no power in it because the lamb hadn't been slain yet. But in God's mind, in God's eye, the eye of faith, that lamb was already slain as far as God was concerned. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So when God, the judge of all the universe, saw the blood he could look at that household through the precious redeeming blood of his son that was instituted before the foundation of the world and he could then withhold his hand of judgment from Israel. He didn't eliminate the judgment because like I said, they're going to be judged. They're going to get their day. It's going to be in the day of tribulation. So God instituted the Passover and instructed Israel to celebrate it as a memorial by an ordinance forever. We're going to be celebrating this in heaven and in eternity because God said it's a memorial that's to be celebrated forever. And since that night in Egypt, the Jews have celebrated the Feast of Passover. I talked about this a little bit last week in the spring of every year through a ceremony called the Seder meal. They're celebrating it right now. They're not killing lambs and draining their blood and painting their doorposts and lentils of their house, but they have a Seder meal that is a symbol or an emblem of this night of Passover. Now the Seder meal was a ceremony that related to the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt. And the entire meal points 
in one way or another to the Lord Jesus Christ. But they, the devout Jew doesn't see it because their Jesus hasn't come yet. They're looking for a future Jesus. That's why they're going to be duped when the Antichrist comes on the scene. And they're going to be convinced that he's their Messiah until he breaks the covenant with them. But one of the most fascinating parts of this meal, and it's very clear to us, although they can't see it, it's crystal clear to us, but one of the most fascinating parts of this meal is the ceremony involving the matzah bread in which three pieces of matzah are wrapped together, each in a separate section, yet joined as one. Three in one, one in three. And the rabbis call these three a unity, true? And some consider it to be a unity of the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You heard the saying that uh, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob became Israel, Israel, begat the 12 tribes of Israel, and they became the great nation of Israel. So he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the nation of Israel. That's no secret. We know that. But we consider it to be the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And I'm going to show you why. The masa is unleavened throughout the scripture. Or, or the masa in this case is unleavened, just like the bread was unleavened on the night of Passover, they didn't have time for the dough to rise. They had to leave in a hurry. They had to prepare the meal and eat and leave in a hurry. So it's unleavened, but leaven throughout the Bible is a symbol of fermentation and corruption. When you put uh, yeast in some dough or flour or whatever, how you make dough, it ferments and it bubbles and it causes, that's what causes the dough to rise. And it's considered a symbol of corruption, a symbol of sin throughout the Bible. And so the matzah was to be made without leaven as a symbol that it was holy before the Lord. So the Lord instructed Israel in the first Passover that not only unleavened bread should be eaten, but since leaven is a symbol of sin, then symbolically the Passover was the beginning of a life free from sin. In other words, tonight, when you leave here, you're going to begin to lead a life free from sin because you're going to be serving the, the living God. So Jesus was our perfect example of this because he lived a sinless life. He lived a life without leaven. Paul wrote of this in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 6 through 8. He says, your boasting, he's telling the, the church of Corinth, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Now this is a spiritual law. Get a rotten apple in a barrel and after so long, it's going to rotten the whole barrel. It's going to leaven the whole barrel. And then he says, clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened, for Messiah Jesus, our Passover has been sacrificed. He made you unleavened. He got the sin out of your life. And then verse 8, it says, let us therefore celebrate the feast of Passover, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, 
but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You should be a, living a life of unleavened bread. So if we were to examine the matzah carefully, we would see that not only is it unleavened, and God taught him how to, how to prepare the matzah. He, he taught him everything in, in the books of the law and stuff. But if we were to examine it closely, we would, we would learn that it is, number one, unleavened. And as a part of the baking process, and people that bake pie crust and stuff like this will know what I'm talking about, the dough is pierced. Sometimes we take a fork and we pierce it. So as it's baking, the air can get through and it won't blow up and puff up or whatever. But that's what keeps it flat, plus the fact that it has no, uh, what do you call it, yeast in it. So as a part of the baking process, the dough is pierced and then baked on a griddle-like surface so that when it's finished, it will have stripes on it. So what's that mean? Well, the prophet Isaiah wrote prophetically about the coming Messiah, and he wrote about him more than any other prophet did. He was considered the messianic prophet. He described Jesus vividly. There's no doubt about uh, who Isaiah was talking about when he was speaking messianically or talking about the, the future that the Christ would come. But he described him as the suffering servant of Israel. And then he said this, the one who would be sinless, pierced, and striped. So is it a coincidence that this piece of matzah is piercing stripe, or is it pointing to something? Isaiah 53, 5, we know this one, you know, surely has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows and so on. But I want to read it to you from the Tree of Life version. It says, but he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities, the chastisement for our shalom or peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Again, Isaiah prophesied he would be pierced and striped. So Jesus the Messiah was without sin, without leaven, just like the matzah, yet he was striped by the Roman cat and nine tails and pierced by the nails that were driven in his hands and feet and by the spear that pierced him in his side. So the matzah points to the one that Paul called Messiah, our Passover. Don't shout me down just because I'm preaching good. But each year the Jews celebrate Passover, and the matzah points to the one who was sinless, striped, and pierced, the one John the Baptist called the Lamb of God. During the Passover meal, the father in the family breaks the middle matzah in two and places a smaller piece on top of the matzah cloth and wraps the larger piece, which is called the afikomen, which means the dessert or the last part of the meal. And in this particular case, the Seder meal, they would have an actual dessert but it wouldn't be the afikamen because the afikamen would follow that. It would be the last part of the meal, the last part of the supper. 
but he would wrap that piece of matzah in a clean white linen cloth. And then the children leave the room, and while they're gone, the father buries the afikam in under something. And this uh, piece of matzah that was wrapped in the linen cloth that was pierced and striped, he, he buries it somewhere in the room where they're having the dinner. And when their children return, they're encouraged to earnestly search for it. And a reward is offered for the one that finds it. So you can imagine three or four kids going through that room. But he calls it the treasure of unleavened bread, which is striped and pierced. He says, go find it. He said it would be wrapped in a linen cloth, buried. He said, earnestly seek it. And when you discover it, you'll find out that it is of great value and there is a reward for finding it. I don't know about you, but when I found Christ, I was rewarded greatly. I found a pearl of great price. I found a treasure hidden in a field. And this is a type that points directly to the events that surround the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, our Passover lamb. So the entire Passover meal points to Jesus in some type of symbolism uh, who has already came and fulfilled all the symbolism. He fulfilled it all, but the devout Jew can't see it. So when we take communion or receive communion, we always read from 1 Corinthians 11 chapter, and in particularly verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. That was a perfect fulfillment of the matzah that was pierced and striped. And Passover is a reminder of a sinless sacrifice that was made on our behalf. He was a substitutionary death for us. And when the Afikamen is eaten at the conclusion of the meal, it symbolizes the sacrifice or the sacrificial lamb which was eaten on the very first Passover when God instituted it as a memorial. Am I going too fast for you? So the Jews don't believe the ceremony of the matzah and how it relates to Jesus because they're still looking for him. He hasn't come as far as they're concerned. See, our Jesus isn't their Jesus, at least for now. But when they get through that tribulation period, their Jesus is going to be the same Jesus we serve. So, coincidence. Conjecture. You tell me. Unleavened, pierced, striped, broken, wrapped in a white linen cloth, buried, diligently sought after with a reward, going to the one who finds it, not to mention it is freely offered, and like with all free gifts, they must be accepted by the recipient. You don't accept that gift, no reward. You stay in your sin. As a Jewish boy, I might run a little bit over today. That's because Shannon took too long praising worship. <laughs> but as a Jewish boy, Jesus kept every law and celebrated Passover as well as all the feasts. 
He kept Passover all those years that he was training his disciples. I say all those years, the three years that he's training his disciples. He kept it as a child all the way up, trained his disciples with it and kept it. But when it came to the what we call the Last Supper or the Last Passover, at least here on earth for him, uh, that he would keep, the Bible emphasizes that he had an intense desire to eat it with his disciples. He ate it with them the whole time he was with them, the whole time he trained them, but now he has an intense desire to eat it with him. Why? Because the time had finally come when Jesus could reveal that he was the bread without leaven that came down from heaven, which would be broken for, for man and come forth from the earth. He could finally reveal to them that he was the Lamb of God whose blood would be shed for all mankind. He couldn't reveal that before this last supper, before this Passover, but now he can. And he looks forward to it intensely. Because now he's going to bring, bring meaning to everything that he did his whole time here on the earth and with his disciples. Now, we look, I'm, I'm going to go off a little bit off chart here. We looked last Sunday at the six days of creation, like I said, and the seventh day, which was a day of rest. Remember, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. That is one of the key scriptures in interpreting end-time prophecy. So the Genesis account gave us a prophetic view of the history of mankind. Not the earth. 6,000 years of labor, 1,000 years of rest. Six days of creation, one day of Sabbath rest. Those days of creation were 24-hour days. That day of rest was a 24-hour day of rest. But it pointed to uh, 6,000 years of labor and 1,000 years of rest prophetically. Let me show you another prophetic model that points the same direction. In Leviticus 23, verses 1 through 4, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them concerning the feasts of the Lord. Remember, it was the Lord's Passover. Well, this are, these are the Lord's feasts which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. And then he says, six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, a holy convocation. You should do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. A day with the Lord. So these are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons. They have to be proclaimed in their seasons. He's not so much concerned with the day of the month or the month of the year or the year. He's more concerned with all of these being done in their seasons. And if these are done in their seasons, all the days and months and years will fall in place. And then God gave them a description of seven feasts they were to observe and celebrate. So God's eternal plan from creation to eternity itself 
is revealed through the nature and the timing of the seven annual feasts of the Lord. And each one of these feasts coincide with our teaching on the Genesis account with a thousand years, just like uh, we brought out last week, a thousand uh, days with the Lord is as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. As a matter of fact, based on the prophetic model that this, that the feast, the seven feasts portrayed, the entire human race, including the church, now exists between two of these seven feasts, the Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Trumpets. Now, the Feast of Pentecost has been fulfilled. The Feast of Trumpets has, been, has not yet been fulfilled, and the church is smack in the middle. Of the two. Keep that in mind. And, uh, and we have to keep in mind that although Jesus is portrayed in the Gospels, which we call the New Testament, he lived and walked during Old Testament times. The four Gospels, in my opinion, should actually be the last four books of the Old Testament, because they were still Old Testament times. Uh, the, the book of Malachi, which is now the last book of the, of the Old Testament, and the beginning of Matthew, there's a 400 span, a 400 year span in between those two events. And it was during that 400 years that Israel didn't hear one word from God. Can you imagine going 400 years without hearing from God? And then all of a sudden the Bible picks up in Matthew and you got these temples and synagogues all over the place and ports and all these peoples and populace and uh, where they come 400 years so the gospels are actually part of the old testament now the the letters and revelation and that that's definitely new testament but anyway my point is this jesus as a devout jew was required to keep every one of the feasts without fail, and he did. Because if he didn't, that means that he was no longer sinless. He disobeyed the law. So God gave Moses the dates and the observances of the seven feasts on Mount Sinai where he also received the Ten Commandments. When Jesus went up to Mount Sinai and got the Ten Commandments, he also got the feasts of the Lord. So let's look at them real quickly as God described them in Leviticus chapter 23. The Feast of Passover, which is Pesach, always in the spring. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, Shag Hamatzi. The Feast of First Fruits, Yom Hevekurim. The Feast of Pentecost, Shabbat. The Feast of Trumpets, Yom Turah. The Feast of Atonement, Yom Kippur and the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. That's the seven feasts. Now remember us talking about the Jewish calendar, the one that Jesus follows? The Jewish New Year always starts on Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the year. It means the head of the year, which started on the day when Adam was created. God's calendar is based on the different phases of the moon and the sun. It's both lunar and solar, which makes it somewhat significant because like 
most other calendars are lunar. They start each month uh, with a new moon. Each month starts with a new moon. Not so with God's calendar. So the first three feasts, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits fall in March and April, always. With the Feast of Passover, which falls on the first full moon of spring. Don't make any difference what the date is. The dates are adjusted for the seasons. The fourth feast, Shabbat, or Pentecost, marked the summer harvest, which occurs in late May or early June. You heard of the early and the latter rains? Well, the summer harvest gets the early rains, the fall harvest gets the latter rains. So the last three feasts, trumpets, uh, Yom Turah, the Feast of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, happen in September and at October. And so we learn that the Jewish calendar is extremely accurate because it is perpetual, as are the feasts. And the Jews were commanded by God to make sure that all the feasts are celebrated in their proper seasons. That would never happen with a lunar calendar or a calendar like we keep. And as a result, the calendar is meticulously and constantly adjusted according to the seasons, not the other way around. And if no adjustments is made, I, I said this last week, Passover would occur 11 days earlier each year, and it would eventually drift into winter, then fall, then summer, and then finally back to spring. And that would be totally against God's commandment. And it can't be allowed. The Torah that God instructed Israel to, to use, that's, their, that's the Jewish Bible, the Torah, and God instructed Israel in the Torah to guard the month of spring and make then the Passover offering. So in other words, Passover must always be observed in the spring. And if Passover is always observed in the spring, then all the other feasts will come in their proper seasons too. That's God's main concern. He's not worried about a calendar or a number on a page. So Passover is the Feast of Salvation. In both the Old and the New Testaments, the blood of the Lamb delivers God's people from slavery or bondage. The Jew from the slavery of Egypt, the Christian from the slavery of sin. Passover, Feast of Salvation. Unleavened bread represents the body of Christ. He's described as the bread of life that came down from heaven. He was the manna in the wilderness. He was born in Bethlehem, which in Hebrew actually means house of bread. First fruits is the resurrection of the Lord. It will eventually be the resurrection of the entire church will happen on first fruit. The first three feasts represent the death burial and resurrection of Christ. Now the Jews had, the Israelites had no way of knowing this when God presented them with the feast. They said, hey, we, we're just going to party for some reason, you know, and we're going to have these feasts every certain time of the year forever. 
but they didn't know at the time what those feasts represented. We do. Hindsight is crystal clear. So uh, Christ was sacrificed on the Feast of Passover, buried the next day on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and raised on the third day on the Feast of First Fruits. That's what they represent. The next feast was Pentecost, and that marked the summer harvest. So Levitical law requires the offering of two loaves of bread baked with leaven. And the two loaves are symbolic of the church age, and they represent the Jews and the Gentiles. That's the only two classes of people in God's eyes, the Jews and the Gentiles. I can say I'm Italian, but I'm a Gentile. I'm a Jew by adoption now, but before I got born again, I was a Gentile. I don't care if you're Irish, Polish, Hebrew, anything else, you are not Hebrew, they're Jews, but you are a Gentile. All the Jews are Jews. So there's Jews and Gentiles. And uh, I like to say in the modern language that there's only two types of people on the earth now, lost and saved. Not saying that the Jews are lost, but they actually are lost until they accept Jesus Christ. So anyway, the first four feasts were in the spring, revealing that Jesus was crucified on Passover, buried on unleavened bread, raised on first fruits, and he sent the Holy Spirit on the Feast of Pentecost and birthed the church. So Pentecost was the beginning of the church age, the dispensation of the church. And because we've not yet seen the fulfillment of feast number five, the feast of trumpets, we remain under the order of Pentecost. And the, uh, because the church was born on the day of Pentecost and will continue to thrive until the feast of trumpets when the church will be raptured in the feast of trumpets. I could almost guarantee you that based on the scriptures that I've set studied. I can't tell you the date or hour. I won't even attempt to do that. But I can tell you the season because God gives us plenty of signs to determine what season we're in. Amen. That's why he was so emphatic about these feasts being in the proper season. He don't want us, he don't want us to follow the signs and determine that we're in this season when the calendar keeps changing and the season that we're in doesn't coincide with the season God wants us in. Amen. So the Feast of Trumpets occurs in September, which marks the end of the harvest. The time between the Feast of Pentecost in May or June to the Feast of Trumpets in early fall, the early and the latter rains, is the church age. The Feast of Trumpets was a time of rest after a time of harvest, a hectic time of harvest because of the latter rains, uh, more hectic than usual. And the high priest would come out of the temple and he would blow the trumpet to signal for the field workers to stop harvesting and come to the temple and take time to worship God. You can't possibly retain all of this 
you're going to have to listen to it again. But Jesus Christ is what our high priest. You know, Paul said, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. He's our high priest, and when he blows that trumpet, we're coming in from the harvest field of the earth, and it will mark the end of the first harvest because the church will be taken out of here. And then the judgment that God withheld on the first night of Passover will be executed upon the Jews during the tribulation period. But we'll be in heaven what? Celebrating the wedding or the, uh, yeah, the wedding ceremony of the Lamb and his church. So the Feast of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is the highest of holy days. This is the one feast that will not be fulfilled by the church because the church owes no atonement. Isn't that wonderful? No. We don't owe any atonement. Uh, the church is not innocent by no means, but it is exonerated because the Lord already paid the price of atonement for us. And the day of atonement will be fulfilled when the Lord returns at his second coming. So the Jews still have to go through the Feast of Atonement. And then there is the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, a feast that lasts seven days. Tabernacle represents the Lord's shelter in the world to come. His great tabernacle that is to exist in Jerusalem during the kingdom age, the millennial reign of Christ. So the seven feasts of Israel are not just feasts of the past, but they are perpetual feasts. The seven feasts of all time. Seven feasts, seven prophetic types and shadows of things to come. This is what I tried to show us last week. So the first three feasts have been precisely and accurately fulfilled to the letter. They're complete. The feast of Passover, which is a type of the sacrifice of Christ, has been fulfilled. The feast of unleavened bread, which is a type of Jesus Christ, the sinless bread that came down from heaven, it's been fulfilled. So those three feasts uh, and then the first, the feast of first fruits, a type of the resurrection, it's been fulfilled. So those feasts have been fulfilled. But the feast of Pentecost is only partially fulfilled. It happened on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came in like a rushing mighty wind, and He birthed the church. I know we always think of it. That's when we got our prayer language. That's when we started speaking in tongues. Yes, it is, but. Don't overlook the fact that he birthed the church when he came. And 3,000 people were added to the church that day. And daily after that. And the church has been growing and growing and growing ever since. But that feast only been partially fulfilled because we're still living in the Feast of Pentecost. It's called the church age. The dispensation of the church. And the Feast of Trumpets will mark the end of the church age with the rapture of the church and then 
seven years of hell on earth. The Jews are converted. Not only are they converted, but out of that mess is going to rise up 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they're going to evangelize the world. At least the Jewish world. And uh, then after the tribulation period, the millennial reign, after that thousand year reign, eternal eternity. The earth will be purified like we said last week, and we're going to eternity. So again, I'm not, I'm not trying to show off, you know, what I know compared to what is in the Bible wouldn't even feel the tip of my baby finger here. But I'm teaching this for the last two weeks, maybe a little more next week, because I want to create this sense of urgency. I want us to get serious about this thing, get our family into, into the house. Maybe I'll talk about that a little bit next week. But we need to get our family into the house, into the boat, into the ship. If you don't stay with the ship, if you don't stay in the boat, if you don't stay in the house, you're open game for the enemy. The destroyer will get you. Amen. Hallelujah. This concludes this message. Thank you for listening. We pray that it's been a blessing to you. For more information about FFC or its ministries, please contact the church office. God bless you, and remember, Jesus is Lord.